Welcome to the GiveAG podcast. I'm Ben, GiveAG's COO. And for those of you who don't know who we are, we are fundraising experts who provide fundraising technology and consultative advice to organizations looking to raise more at events and online. We've helped to raise over 650 million US dollars across the UK, Canada, USA, Hong Kong, and Australia. We're excited to share our fundraising stories, tips, and tricks through this medium. So sit back and enjoy the show. In today's episode, we'll be continuing our new podcast series based around thought leadership that invites game changers from the industry to share their stories, inspire charities to think differently, be bolder and look for new ways to fundraise. COVID-19 has thrown up a plethora of challenges for the nonprofit sector. However, difficult times often allow new ideas to be heard, and we are hoping to explore some of them with fundraising leadership coach Stephen George. Now, Stephen has over 35 years of experience in the fundraising industry. He was part of NSPCC's, one of Europe's leading children's charities leadership team for 11 years and served as the vice chairman of the Institute of Fundraising for five years. Stephen is currently focused on helping third sector leaders to become better leaders through training, workshops and designing solutions. Stephen commits to aiding charities, charity leaders to raise more for the causes they care most about. And we're excited to have him here with us today. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. Strange times, but lovely to be here with you. Well, it's quite a unique time, though, isn't it? Because we're in wow. phase one of the lockdown and we're about to enter phase two. But have you been to the shop yet? I've been. Oh, yes, I've definitely been. It's quite a weird experience. I have to say, you could... You become institutionalised when you're stuck at home. And I think what I've, I've noticed, everybody's quite nervous. It's like the end of a war and everyone's coming out and they're kind of looking around. No one's confident, are they, at the moment? Strange thing. But yeah, it's like, yeah, like when people look at each other. Do we, do we approach you? Do we? I know. I know. And we're all reading in our people's eyes and people are nervous in shops. And um, But if the weather tips up, we'll be fine. It's going to be it's going to be good. And the big question, have you been out for a pint? I have. I did the classic Monday night, first night thing and took several days to get over it. So more than one, one might say. <laughs> Good boy error, but you never learn, do you? Oh, absolutely. So just to find out a little bit more about you, as I said at the start, you've been in this for 35 years, which is a really long time. But how did your journey start? I think it's always interesting when someone asks that kind of that question and you kind of look back on it, you think, where did time go? I think the older you get, the more time seems to go faster. And you look back and you think it was accident. You know, I, I didn't go to university and, and have a career path. I, I worked for my father when I left school. I kind of missed all that moment, really, of developing and learning in a kind of sense of where I was. And I, I think I was one of those rare people. Don't forget, it was a long time ago. You think how, how, how many years ago that was. And at the time... I think it was right at the beginning when the when the Institute of Fundraising, for instance, was born. It was when the profession had started to become much more serious about itself. And and I, I literally fell into it. I was dissatisfied in what I was doing, hadn't got a career path, didn't know where I was going. I'd missed the university moment, ended up in retail for a little bit, learned about customers, learned about management through that program that I went in. And then I found a job in a in a in a, in a great charity. And I as soon as I joined it, I felt immediately that I belonged and I had found vocation and I stuck with it and worked my way through and up and down and back down again, and back up again and 
made lots and lots and lots of mistakes and met some amazing people through the whole thing. But I've always felt a strong sense of commitment, passion about the, the sector and what it's about. I felt a, a strong sense of belonging and um, very, you know, huge reservoir of fulfillment, I think. So, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been amazing. And it was all by accident. It's not like a kind of design thing. I just found, found a career. And I know lots of people I meet have often found their careers by accident. They haven't deliberately found that. So, yeah, yeah. Long time yeah. ago. No, I can vouch for that as well. Kind of, I think I think sometimes as well, there's quite a lot of people that can fall into fundraising, and someone will say, hey, "God, did you go to? Did you know? Did you study just to do that?" And you're like, "No, actually, <laughs> completely." No, kind people of... don't understand it. And if you find it, you know, and if you find it, and you feel an affinity to it, and you kind of in your in your heart know, especially if you're not really searching, you're searching. I think most people search for a job with meaning and validation and contribution of what they're doing, and even if they don't know how to do it. You know, and I, I think that you that is a path when you feel that you've got something worthwhile that you can learn, you know, stacks of mistakes, stacks of great stuff along the way. But always, always learning. And that that keeps you growing. It keeps it keeps you having, you know, purpose and meaning. And I think that's just been such a, a, a gift, really. Very, very, very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And. And like from working, you know, really getting deep into the charity and, and like you said, up, down and all these different roles, how or, or why did you take that transition to come out of the charity and then be more of a consultative kind of advice? So a couple of things that happened and often they're about, you know, a kind of push and a pull. So I'd done a, by then I'd done a lot. I'd finished the time, you know, I was there as a, you talk about, you know, a big chunk of my career was at NSPCC and and UNICEF and others, and then I'd spent as director of fundraising at Maggie's, and and I and I think I just got to a point where I I thought I was young enough to have another phase of career where I could have more control and be my own person within it, and I had enough experience that I could put into that, but enough space still to grow and and, and take on another challenge. It's kind of that pivotal moment. There was a bit of that, and I, I kind of a little bit of me to be. Well, honest was a bit burnt out. I think. I think I got to the point where I thought, kind of now need need something a bit more different. At the same time, incredibly lucky that um, there was an opportunity with UNICEF that I got a relationship with, and we had an opportunity. And I got partnered up with a, with a colleague, mine, Alan, in the um, and Freeman and I, and we got this contract to work with UNICEF uh, globally to allow them, you know, to work on their their legacy program with them, which was just absolutely stunning opportunity. So I I jumped. Um, about six, seven, eight years ago now. I can't even remember that. And um, that was another path. That was another journey in a sense, because that actually opened up an awful lot of opportunity to travel and to meet people and other fundraisers and other great organizations around the world. So it, it was, it, again, that was another gift. Another gift. Very grateful. Yeah, I think that's, it sounds super exciting. I think in the charitable sector as well, you don't often get to travel. That's one thing that I've started to realize. You travel around your country doing events, 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 and all different stuff. But yeah, that must have been such an exciting opportunity. So are you glad you made that, that transition into, into what you do now? Yes, I am. Because I mean, I see a lot of people now, and I think the world of work's changed. You know, I think we are now increasingly moving to a place where you're more likely to be hiring interims, freelancers. You know, I've seen now teams and you know, problem solvers, very exciting way of actually assembling people with talent and who have right talent for the right problem in the right organization and you can assemble rather than necessarily having a fixed cost of an organization. So the more people are 
freelancing with their own skills and the more that there's a network there, you can actually construct really clever solutions. And that's been very, very exciting. So I've been incredibly pleased to do it. I mean, I had to pivot. You know, the thing is, you kind of move from a space where you're employed, you get a salary. Excellent. But then you have to set your own business up. You have to set your own stuff up. But I've been by myself, but I've worked in partnership collaboration with lots of people. So it's been great. I'm very, very, uh, very pleased to have done it. It was the right thing. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to some of the questions that I've got around kind of thought leadership. So one of my first ones is often in times of crisis, you know, new ideas can come forward. Throughout your career, you've been focused on encouraging your clients to embrace innovation. How have you felt that the pandemic has forced your clients to look for new ideas? And can you think about, you know, how they may have done this? Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a great question. And you start where we are now when you kind of look, look back mm. at that moment. I mean, I think what happened was, and we tried very, very early in that. I remember it now in that phase. One of my um, partners that I work with in Canada, Blakely, we, we, been, we were right at the beginning. We were trying to work out, thinking about where other charities might be, charity leadership might be, and thinking through how they would operate by having a bit of a map for them. And, and one of the ways that we tried to invent that was to think about the stages that we're likely to go through. So one of them was crisis. And then people settle down into some kind of contingency and then they plan for recovery. But what we added in was a fourth space, which was to plan for transformation, that to use the difficulty that we've got through the COVID experience and to pick up deliberately at the beginning with a mind that said we're open to that, to pick up ways to find how we might do things differently. And to, to then ask ourselves the question, if we're going to use this opportunity what would we transform about the way we work, who we talk to, how we operate and deliver the work that we've got? And I think looking back, it's interesting. There were some who felt in crisis and stayed in crisis. They didn't talk to donors. They kind of thought, well, let's not talk to them. Whereas the bold ones had a conversation with them, didn't even ask them for money early on. This is what we're doing. This is our problem. We want to talk to you, you know. And then many really did lean forward and then ask, you know, I've seen so many countless stories of organizations trimming out what could argue kind of peripheral stuff, going back to core purpose and being better at asking for money in that core purpose. And what they've done is they've actually, you know, many of them have had incredibly successful fundraising appeals through the last 18 months or year, year or so. And so the ones then that have planned for transformation are the ones then that are re-engineering. Everybody has found digital, they were underutilizing, they kind of knew it, didn't do anything about it, prices hit, realized they were behind the curve, and as a consequence of that, they got to play catch-up. But if you're in the middle ground of a charity, you know, and you don't have all that infrastructure, and you've got a really brilliant opportunity to, to build something as you go forward. I think a lot of it was having mindset. You know, some people have been safe, some people have been bold and brave. The bolder, braver ones, I think, are the ones going to come out of this with a little bit more of a robust platform place. And we've all changed the way we work. You know, I mean, the amount of people we've all met, we've all met people who go, no, you can't do that from home. Um, that isn't possible. Okay, so we kind of prove that now. I've always been an evangelist for work, flexible working. I kind of, thought, you know, I, you know, that time ago, I mean, after nobody will remember that. We had fax machines, so we had remote working with fax machines at home. Those were the days. The I concept works. The tech supports it. The management and the leadership needs to nurture it and encourage it. And if we can embrace that properly, 
we've actually built a really interesting hybrid model for going forward. It's going to be much more flexible for us. I think actually, as we go forward, could potentially be really exciting. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think like what you're saying there about the way the tech has changed us as well. I think it's given you, given charities such a big opportunity now as well. It's the same as like Giverji, we support charities, but we can get talent now from all around the world. We, it's before we were like, you know, we all need to be in the office. You all need to be there. Where now we've, you know, things have changed and we've got some people that have just come on board and you're like, this, they're so exciting, but we wouldn't have captured them in the area that we were before. So I think it's no. the same narratives. It's like using it, it. It is. And it's going to get, you know, I think, you know, now because we've had a year, I keep meeting people who've never physically met the people they work with. They've met them through, a, you know, and I mean, we will need humans, all of us, particularly, you know, there's a certain age group in the sector who will, who like working in an office and want to be in an office and, and, and enjoy being with each other. And, you know, and I think there's that there's that need for us to know how to get together and have some fun and enjoy ourselves, and, you know, and build those social connections that will sustain us when we're then operating remotely. So we've got to do that deliberately. We can't not do that. And I think people are looking forward to going back to it, but it won't be what it was. Yeah, no, agreed. And I suppose as well for charities, there's also, a, you know, every, they're always trying to save costs as well so they can give as much as possible. So there's all there's so, there's so many benefits, like you said, but it's getting that, that balance right. But I think from what you said about charities being bold, you know, we've we've been so fortunate to work with so many charities across the world. And I couldn't agree more in terms of the boldness because some of them, I think, have gone, you know what, I'm finally going to ask. I'm really going to go for it. And I'm going to ask people to help us. And I know it sounds silly because the amount of times that I'm sitting there in a client meeting going, I think you should do a pledge. I, I really think if you just, you know, you know, they don't, people don't always need an auction item. Just ask them for the money and tell them why make it emotive and the amount that have done it and i think i've said this a few times we have seen such a dramatic increase in the amount of people pledging but especially in the uk where you know in america where we operate there they are like the pledge country of the world they'll ask 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 but it's, i think it's been inspiring to see so many charities here at home have actually yeah. gone we need help help us <laughs> you know you're so right and i do th i do think there was a bit of a drift towards a lot of charities not you know there are, there are some with incredible asking engines in the way that they operate and work i'm sure you know there are plenty of examples of that but there was a bit of a drift to people reacting to what was happening you know sitting behind watching you know money coming in and so many examples of community fundraisers who were reluctant to engage and ask people and actually i think we've rediscovered the ability and the confidence and the courage to lean out a little bit more, be much more focused and ask with purpose and passion. And, and you know, you are right. The difference between the U. I do, I do, you know, I've got some relationships in the, in Canada and US and, and I do wonder sometimes, you know, their, their ability to be direct about that. You often don't see it in the UK, but more and more and more people are just asking and it's, it's working and it's lovely. Yeah. It's inspiring. And I think one not thing scary. I'm, no, absolutely not. And I, and I think one thing that would really help, especially for our listeners, is that because of like in the UK, we have the furlough scheme in Australia, we have jobs. There's so many schemes that have helped companies and charities to, to survive. And I think that the reasons for so I found that some fundraisers want to be bold and wanted to get out there. But obviously, because of the powers that are above or financial decisions, they, they you know, so many got furloughed or put onto different things. 
And I'm starting to speak. Loads of these charities are now coming back on board. And I'm like, oh, God, it's been so long. I've now got to catch up. I'm trying to listen to these podcasts. I've, I've heard that charities are doing this. But it must be scary for them. I mean, in terms of, like you said, in terms of the way that you think about, you know, the crisis all the way through transformation, for those that do need to catch up and catch up quick, is there any advice that you would give to those leaders out there? Yeah, I would. I, what I, I would say that the same model of, you know, crisis contingency, you know, recovery and transformation should apply to you personally in your personal space and development. I mean, you don't have to go back to what it was. You know, if you're hungry and you want to develop and you want to grow, you know, and you want to find a way in which you can actually find the confidence, the, the ability to actually lean forward and, and go be a bit more bolder in that sense, because I, I think we've all done life short. We've all been on a shared experience of mortality, which has been quite interesting for people. And there are a lot of people going, right, time's important. Let's get on with it. So I would say to those people, think hard about your own personal purpose and your own personal direction, where you want to go and be bolder at trying to go there. You know, the, the problem with some of the leadership is the leadership isn't bold enough for your own aspirations. That's a real challenge, isn't it? Because what that means is, is you're kind of trapped there. You're waiting for them to let you. And that's where we have this tension in a sense. But if you find an organization or yourself where you're encouraged as opposed to, then I think, I think everything happens from that moment. Don't so be brave enough to go for that. Celebrating. And, and I think as well, one, one thing that I found in my career in, in the third sector is that a lot of charities are put into a box in terms of they can only work to this kind of that kind of format. It's very constrained. And it's I, I find quite often you can, you know, you're at meetings and you're, you're, you go to especially boards <laughs> when you get to the board level and you're trying to, you know, trying to think of, you, you have a fundraiser. It's like, you know, what I want to try something new. I want to do this, this and that. And then they'll come out that meeting and go, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> we're just we're sticking to what we've always done. We're in those constraints. And I think that's a little bit about the last 12 months. It's pushed people to go, that's out of the window now. It has. And I think I think part of the reason that's done that is because I think leadership in organisations has been trying to navigate you know, high levels of uncertainty. You know, we've been trying to find common ground, certainty, confidence that the organisation in some cases, you know, won't go under. So what, what will tend to happen in those moments is, is there's a natural deferring to safety. Kind of moment when you feel you do what works and you know what works and it gives you confidence it's going to work again and I mean I think that's fine but if you're thinking about and I don't think that's wrong necessarily you have to pick the right response to the right situation but as we come out of it that kind of level of safety is not going to get us place that we want to go to next I can't I just don't see how that's going to happen and I do think if you look you know for, for great levels of inspiration Look at startups, look at entrepreneurs, look at people driving social causes through businesses. You know, they're doing incredible work and they're really genuinely making really powerful contributions to the planet and how they're changing things. But they're also making a livelihood as well at the same time. So lots of those organizations are failing. They learn how to fail. They fail and they fail and they fail until they get it right. But you can't work in an environment and and innovate if you can't fail you can't do it you know spacex loss has just gone on to this only took it's taken i think it how many have it got the last four crashed 
exploded on the thing and they just built another starship and it's finally managed to land. It's no, that's, that's a kind of extreme. I'm not saying that it's a kind I mean, of extreme version, but you know what I mean? If you don't learn to fail and know how to fail and are encouraged to experiment and fail, you won't ever succeed. It won't happen. And, and it's, uh, back to. it's the same as I'm sure you can agree. Like Stephen, it's the same as myself and you. It's, I have failed. I'll hold my hands up. There's many things times in my life I've taken a risk and I've, I've fallen flat on my face, but it's made me a stronger person every time. And I've gone, you know what? That didn't work. But then you get better. I find if you learn from that mistake and go, you know what? We didn't yeah. do that that well, but from it, this and this and this happened. You can just, it just spirals and you can just become such a stronger charity or a leader, can't you? If you, if you learn to take from it and also actually wear it rather than, you know, some people, if, if they have a knock, completely ruined, you know, mentally, they'd be like, no, we've failed. And they're really like, and you're like, oh, you haven't failed. It's just that idea didn't work. But what did work from the idea? Did you get where I'm going with it? Totally, 100%. And I think what happens is, you know, I think that's why your re- resilience and robustness in going into that and in the organisation that you work in that encourages that or or kind of suppresses it, that's how you're going to thrive because it is a combination between two things combination between the environment that you work in that encourages or not and you you know who you are how you what you worry about i mean you know i i intellectually understand the failing part but for me it's always been something that i failed more times god bloody, more times than i've i kind of succeeded i, I honestly i can count loads of them and and there's always been quite a lot of sadness in those in those failures almost torture i find i find it still you know personally i still haven't quite worked out how to bounce back but you do you have to because if you don't learn from it and don't have the capacity for it you never grow you you just can't and i think lots of people particularly younger fundraisers are stuck in organizations without a manager a leader who encourages them to to grow and develop and they're not the kind of leaders that they need to be with find a leader that can help you and then so you can lead otherwise you won't grow and you know, so like we say life's too short 100% here at Giverdew we love an inspiring story so over the last 12 months you know it has been so tough <laughs> like no matter even the people that have been bold it's still been hard for us all hasn't it you know have you seen any examples because you work with so you interact with so many different people you're in a unique position but have you, have you heard of any, you know, it might be one of your clients or just an inspiring story where a charity really has or a leader has gone out their way and done something different and it's actually really, you know, it's really paid off? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an organisation I'm working with at the moment who it's been a real honour to be with them through the journey and an interesting kind of privilege, really. It's an interesting question to sort of reflect on, you know, you anecdotally hear and you work with and you see and some people have they, they don't want they don't want to talk about it until they're kind of absolutely confident fear of failure again they don't want to be out there but what i have seen in this one organization in particular and i think it's fantastic is it wasn't particularly a fundraising organization it, it kind of needed to have the fundraising culture and ability to actually fundraise and ask well but it just didn't have that culture in place. So it had an intention to change that culture. And what happened in COVID and the crisis and the need for the money was it completely transformed its ability to fundraise and raise more. So it cut all the bits that it had kind of 
intended to change in culture, the way people behaved inside, and the situation forced people to move in a different way. So what this last six to 10 months has done is meant, I mean, they raised, what, 12, I think 12, 13 million pounds in an appeal. They've never done that. They, wow. they, you know, they, they have never raised that level of money in an appeal. And they did it. They did it online. They did it with challenges. They did it with direct tasks. They've got a reasonably small database. They're not, they're not, it's not a huge database. But they asked with incredible passion and clarity and, um, got everybody on board with it and picked the right tools. And, and that at the end of it, what I think is inspiring is there's a shared experience which will stay with them and endure with them for a very long time. Kind of the way of change that when a crisis happens, it has such a benefit sometimes. Not always the doom. It forces something to happen. And shared experience, I've often found shared experience is the way that actually you get the transformation because everybody's on board and everybody gets fit. And then they feel part of it. And that's, I think, what's happened. So that's, that's one of them, without a doubt. You know, there are others. There are people who listen to this who know that there are others who have been through that kind of uh, uh, process in the last six to, six to ten months. Well, and you know what? It sounds like, you know, listening about that organisation, they've, they've gone through that, that, like, those stages you said about crisis, and they've gone through, like, that major culture shift. Did you find, because we, we found this in our, in, our, in our company, is that when the sticks were down, they were really down, <laughs> but we actually found some rock stars that became like the biggest rock stars in the world. And I'm personally, I always thought certain people were brilliant, but then I saw some people that I wasn't really focusing on. They were in the, they were in the side of my vision. All of a sudden, I'm like, you can do all these things. And you've got all these ideas, and you and they're like absolute now. They're like a firework. Did, yep. did, did they find that in themselves as well? Is that they, they had their people just became different people? Different people, you know. I mean, the, the, you know, most of our interactions have been through these, through the camera and through the. So we found people who have responded through the medium of the way that we work. That's worked for some, but not for others. I think some leaders have been brilliant at bringing teams together. Seen some lovely examples of where. People have been incredibly inventive and you've created a social network online and they've had workouts together and we've all done the quizzes and we've all done the kind of, you know, they've, had, they've really built camaraderie around it. But you're right. There have been individuals who surprisingly have, have, have you know, surprisingly in the sense that, you know, they shone through at a moment that nobody expected them to. Now, either that's the circumstances or it's the ability of the leader to encourage them and give them the space to do it or it's a combination of all of that or it's sometimes the bravery of that person because they've seen something needs doing and they've stepped up to it and that's just a brilliant thing to see and when they get that they get the confidence and then and then you know people have just been amazing through this and it's been incredibly tough i i feel so much for those fundraisers who've been furloughed you know and and have been waiting and some organizations, you know, the first thing they've done is they've just they've, they've cut their fundraising teams. Yeah, so many. Which is stupid. Bluntly, it's just a stupid thing to do. It's just a, it's just, you know, it's just a daft thing to do. And that's not, it's not gotten through this. But I felt for people who've been through this. In that, in that, everyone's had to go through it. But in the fundraising, those ones who have been, been in that space. So it's been hard for us all. It's not a time of, you know, for everyone, a time of positive mental health and walking in parks. It's been very tough. 
very yeah. tough. But you're right. It's so lovely to see unexpectedly people respond. That's always a joy. Always yeah. a joy. No, definitely. I, I think there's, like, from what you were just saying, there's so many things that have happened where I think as well, because in many charitable teams, they have been made smaller because, unfortunately, like you said, they've, they've let go of some absolutely amazing people that I know personally all around the world. And it's, it's such a shame that sometimes leaders can't see the ROI in an event, in a fundraiser because, you know, without the fundraisers, you kind of can lose what you have. But I do think, I think one, just from a personal view of kind of dipping into charities, is that some people's roles, though, the barriers have gone. Before, they've been told, you do this job, you focus on this. As once organisations get, you know, stronger and stronger, you do then become more like, that's your job. But I've noticed when on some calls, I'm like, oh, okay, you didn't do that before. But now, you've got a bigger voice, and that person's then being celebrated more. So in some ways as well, I think that's also one of the reasons they've been able to have more of a voice or an opinion that they didn't have before. This is very much a leveller, you know, and, and in, in those kind of moments, everyone is genuinely expected to sort of go slightly further in it. And I think we've all felt a sense that this we're in this together and we need to come out of it together and we need to contribute as much as we possibly can. And it, yeah, I think you're right. It's knocked down a lot of the artificial stuff that was kind of potentially in the way there. And collaboration has been completely different. And the other thing is, you know, What's so lovely is because this technology has allowed us to feel like the whole world has shrunk. We were having supportive, encouraging conversations with people all over the world. Yeah. Which is a gift. So, gift. Definitely. Like, sorry, I said at the start, isn't it? It's connected us, connected so many of us now. The world does seem smaller, isn't it? Even without flying yeah. everywhere anymore, you just can, you can spend a whole day speaking to like five people in five different countries. It's just, yeah, it's quite exciting as well. Can't wait for the real conferences, though. I kind of like, you know, beer afterwards is a kind of, for me, normal place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one, yeah, definitely. So one thing that I think would really help charities as well is that, you know, I know you've worked for, you know, NSBCC, UNICEF and, and other, other real, what I call in my head, they're kind of like power brands because, you know, they're on TV, you know about them and they're really, really well-known charities. But most of the clients that we work with are actually not charities that you would have naturally have heard of. They're doing amazing work and sometimes they, they have very specific causes. So you'd only interact with them if you knew somebody that had been affected by that. So I think one thing that could help is that, you know, you have the wealth of experience of seeing how a charity that's been going for such a long time have been able to have, you know, they'll have loads of different teams and different people that are doing all that kind of fundraising. You know, is there anything that you could share that would help a small to medium charity? Because most charities are a lot smaller, you know, from the leadership that you've gained that you could pass on to them. I think one of the things that, and it isn't necessarily true of the larger and the smaller ones, but one of the things I think is valuable wherever you are and whatever you are, whatever you do, is clarity on two things. Clarity on purpose why you exist and being able to articulate that. I do think that gets lost a lot. You know, why you're there, the why answer to it. And and if you can capture it and clarify it and make that crystal clear, no matter what size you are, you can really shortcut your ability to communicate and get other people on board, you know, the, the, the purpose part of it. I mean, people talk in great detail about some of the program without the problem and the solution. 
and their part in helping solve that problem, that why they are who they are. So that proposition and clarity of message, that, that's, I think many small and medium-sized charities, there are loads who are brilliant. I'm not suggesting that at all. I think there's plenty of examples. But if I was to say where people do tend to not get that bit right, I would say that is the bit. They, they overcomplicate it or don't make it plain or clear enough in language that we immediately, immediately get and understand. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, would be aspiration. I think, think people are fearful of being firing to be bold enough. You know, if, I think if you step, I've always loved the kind of thrill of the step change approach to it, that it's tougher and more of a ride. And when it, you get there, it settles. And you, but you're further ahead than where you are than on a kind of steady incremental 0.6% increased growth every year on year kind of thing. Not the kind of ride that inspires people, really. Be bolder, I would say. Be more aspirational and articulate that aspiration and back it up with a clear purpose. And, and then from that, then you can invest in it. And then if you invest in it, you, you kind of then can follow the tracks along as to what you need to get there. Because your argument is, where do I want to go? Why am I here? What do I need to get there? They just answer those key questions. They're kind of halfway there really and that i often find is is i i love those moments because i can sit with them and go let's just talk you through that and when you pull it out of them it's already there it's just got lost in all the that we have that i would say i say the bigger organizations are often better getting that bit right they've probably got more resource and you know but i i think that's the bit if i would say I would say that would be the things to do. They would be the most. And, and I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, I was giving the example about the ask and how people have become more bolder. Mm. I couldn't agree more in that sense because this is the amount of time sometimes I, in my history in, in this sector, and I can be there and you're trying to push them to, to really ask. And I, and I know what their ask would be in my mind because I see so many charities. I'm thinking mm. you're doing really, really, really important here. <laughs> Get on that, you know, if I'm doing an event or an online account, whatever it is. And I'm like, just, I, I even I can articulate, I think, what you're actually about. Get up there and say it. And they're like, oh, no, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think we would do that. And I think sometimes when you hit the nail on the head, it is that purpose. Like, remind yourself, actually, I'm here to do something really, really important. And remember. So if you go back to your previous point and thought about a question in terms of this, this confidence in asking, you, you know, you th- if we pull that apart, one of the reasons people don't ask with any confidence is they can't anchor themselves with any clarity in purpose or aspiration. They, they aren't entirely clear. You know, if it's like uh, there's a joke about economists, you know, if there's 10 in a room, there's 20 opinions about something. You know, it's, if you put some fundraisers who work for the same organization in a room and ask them, who do you work for? What do they do? And why do they do it? And what would solve the problem? What's the problem? What's the solution? You would get hundreds of different responses because you, we're reinventing them. And, and, and when we're asked, we go, oh, hang on a minute, and we reinvent it, which doesn't give us confidence. So asking comes from confidence and really being tuned to, to you understanding the why. The great askers of for money are passionate because they know the difference that money will make. They feel it. They see it. You can see it in their eyes. It's all over them. And they will say, I need this money because. 
please help us. You can make this different. They're brilliant at it. So I think those two things relate. I really do. I think that's where purpose and clarity and being able to say that with an aspiration, something that you're trying to get to, some place you want to get to, gives you the confidence to be able to ask. Yeah, it's belief, isn't it? Belief. It's when I always think that belief. in my I've had time, I'm sure you have. You know when you're asked to do something and you go on that mission, but you don't fully get it or you don't fully yep. believe it. And then I'll, I'll, I'll do it myself. And then I'm, then I'm all of a sudden, I'm like tongue-tied and I can't really, I can't really explain it. But then if I truly, truly believe it, it's like all of a sudden you become Barack Obama and you're like yeah. the best person in the world. But it's only it's only yeah. when you believe it. And in terms of what you're what you offer in that example, because I think like just that takeaway there, charities can go. I think loads. I think loads of charities will go. You know what? We maybe we need to have that session. If you were to approach a charity, how would you help them go through that journey? I don't like, I mean, you know, the problem is there's an old the phrase consultant suggests that you can't, and I have struggled with this. I'd be honest, you know, I kind of struggle with this, this sense of, I have experience and knowledge. It isn't always the right experience or the right knowledge for the situation that you're in. And it doesn't mean what I know is always right. But you do have to create and craft. You do have to understand where someone is. You know, there are people in the sector who look at, older experienced people and think that they're kind of you know stuck in their ways and i think if you're stuck in your ways that's not helpful that doesn't contribute anything mm-hmm. if you have value and experience but you can adapt it to the circumstance the situation that you're in that's an enduring experience that's the stuff then and in those moments then it's about a conversation it moves from kind of consultancy i'm going to teach you so I'm going to facilitate you and work with you and I will apply what I know to help us, you, get to a point where you get it and you own it and it's yours, not a kind of thing that you just just kind of pressed a button on. And, and that's often, I think, collaborative. I mean, the interesting thing about the tech is now, like design sprint workshops, absolutely wonderful sessions. Take a problem, use design sprints. Find a whole methodology. We've all got the mural boards we can use. And if you have somebody facilitating who can guide you through, who can add some stuff in about here's an idea, because you've got you can draw on the experience, doesn't mean it's the right one. Then you can move people through from getting the problem to the solution. That's the kind of kind of it's, so it becomes a search. That's what it becomes. It becomes a journey, a quest to find a solution. And you you have to start with the articulation of the problem. I bet you if you asked anybody who's in my kind of freelance sense, most people come to us with the wrong problem. Mm. And of course, that's really difficult for us because, well, you go, OK, look, I want to help you. But you have to risk that by pushing back and going, is that the right thing? Look, why don't you think about this? And my experience tells me they haven't articulated the problem. But can't help them because all I'll end up doing is I don't want to take anyone's money doing a thing that's the wrong thing. It doesn't kind of it's not the right thing. So it is a quest. And it starts with if people say, I think I've got a problem and I don't quite know how to articulate it. Can you help me get clarity around it? That would be brilliant brief. Yeah, I know what you mean. We're on the page. Now, what do you think are your options for solving that problem? Who's best? Often it's not me. There's other people who are better. There's, pl- there's plenty of it, brilliant people around. That, I think, would be a really interesting space for people to be a little bit more 
something's not right here and I need to fix this. I don't entirely know. Help me articulate the, the, the problem. And that's when it is a, a, a balance between consultancy and coaching because it's a coaching experience. Really what people want to do is to get it right. You know, people's fear is, is failing, not getting it right, you know, being judged for, for not, not delivering. And you kind of have to understand that and be with them in that space because your goal is to get them to succeed. And if they can't succeed where they are, go somewhere else. And I think all of that goes down to as well. You, you have to be open to the change and, and the honesty level, isn't it? It's kind yeah. of a little like how I, I visualize in my head listening to what you're saying. It's like, imagine if you've got a house built of Lego and that's your charity. You kind of got to be able to let it fall down as in unravel it and then rebuild those bricks back up to find out yeah. your purpose and who you are. But I've been in those sessions, you're in your session and you're, you're doing that. And then you go, you know what? We're actually not that good at this. And no. but I'm really good at this. But then someone's there going, hang on. And they're getting really defensive. You're like, no, just chill. Let's be honest. That's who we are. But unless <laughs> unless you're going to do that, you can, I've been in those sessions. It's just a, it's a battle rather than a support, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. You have to be prepared to be vulnerable within that. And vulnerability is is a hard thing in, in these kind of short term days of judgment where people expect results faster than they're capable of delivering those results. And then we're all running around like headless chickens. You know, there is every fundraising director or leader is responsible for three things, short, medium and long term. They don't see what happens in the income that comes in from long term and usually in their tenure, unless they're there for a very long time. You know, but you're still your job in that time is to air and build the roots and the platform for where the long term comes in, as well as the short. If you're all short term, you're just going to go off a cliff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, just to bring a bit of banter into this. Now, you've done 35 years in this sector, so you've definitely you've definitely done your time <laughs> in terms of your experience. You must have seen loads of different things happen. What would you say is the funniest moment that you've seen from your career? It could be to do with fundraising, it could be anything, but just a funny story for the listeners. Well, I kind of have to be careful on some of these stories because, you know, I think there's a judgment today which is different about what was then. The problem with spanning kind of a reasonable length of time is is that things then are not are not funny now. There's that kind of moment you kind of you do have to develop and go with the way people are changing, and that's I think that's good. That's right. It's illuminating, and you know there's stuff in those days that was that, that was funny, and I don't think it is now. Um, let's think. But no, I think there's one. It actually was personal. It happened to me. So I do recall it because with with a kind of sense of horror. So I was at a major major donor reception before uh, an event. It was an 18th century house in a beautiful, if you can paint this picture, this white alabaster ceiling and walls, 18th century plaster up on the top there. And there was a table full of um, champagne and there was all the sponsors of this particular, it was an NSPCC event, I remember it. And I was invited to go because I was uh, at the time one of the directors and I had to do some kind of speech thing at the end. But I, being a grassroots fundraiser, I turned up at the reception. They hadn't got enough people to serve the champagne. I stepped in. I got a, a, a bow tie on, so I kind of looked like a waiter anyway. So I stepped in and I said, Would you? I said, of course, look, don't let me, let me help, let me help. So I picked up a bottle of champagne. And I know how to open a bottle of champagne. It's not like rocket science, except for some inexplicable reason. I popped it. can't explain why. Even this moment, it feels, I popped it. And if you can imagine in slow motion, the horror of the pop coming out 
the top of the cork rocketing to the top of the ceiling directly over the cluster of all of the darkly clad sponsors as it hit the alabaster ceiling. And almost in complete unison, I sprayed them all because I put my thumb over it to stop it. Just at that moment, as it hit the plaster and sprayed them all in this very fine powder. And they stopped and they looked around at me. And I, I looked like I, I was I was pretty mortified. It was pretty funny. It was kind of a moment where I remember thinking, there you go, that's a leveller. That's a leveller. It looked, oh, yeah. No, it's right. I shouldn't say this. Now, but it looked like they got cocaine all over their shoulders. It was all this fine powder. It just was awful. <laughs> Dreadful, man. And they looked in absolute horror. Who is this bloke? And of course, then later on, I had to stand up and thank everybody solemnly on behalf of not not my finest, not my finest. But it's the one I probably could safely tell you without there feeling any awkwardness. I love it. You're the champagne guy, the guy that nearly the champagne um, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you know what? Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today. I know that our listeners will have thoroughly enjoyed your advice. I think you've been absolutely amazing. And please, please keep doing what you're doing, because I do think you obviously are helping so many charities. And for anyone that's listening, you know, if you would like to find out more about Stephen and the services that he offers to nonprofits and charities, I think I would have said this right. Go to www.stephenwgeorge.com. You'll find there loads of great tips and tricks. And obviously, if you want to reach out to Stephen directly, you can do as well. But thank you so much, Stephen. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure to be here. And our final note is we really hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found the content really informative. You know, if you have any suggestions for our podcast, please email podcast at gibbyg.com. And as I said at the start, this is a series for thought leadership. So we've got lots of other guests coming on in the coming weeks. So please don't forget to hit subscribe. You know, as soon as we drop one of these podcasts, you'll get a notification. And we really hope that you've enjoyed today's session. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.